Greetings and welcome to Smart Loving Conversations, the place where we discuss all things Catholic marriage. I'm Francine Parola. And I'm Laura Kane from Smart Loving, a global network that accompanies couples as we together explore how to maximise the good times and learn from the bad ones. With our guests, we explore love, marriage, family and living the Catholic faith, setting our sights on heaven while keeping our feet on the ground or in the mud and muck that life throws our way. We've been there and so have our guests. Join us for better and for worse as we dive deep into real life conversations of struggle and triumph. Welcome friends and listeners of Radio Maria Australia to Smart Loving Conversations. This episode we're talking about how to love smarter. We are so pleased that you are joining us today, friends. We don't have a guest this week, but Francine and I are going to explore this topic of how to love smarter. And we would just love to put the invitation out there. If you are a smart loving graduate, uh, maybe you've done one of our courses and you would like to be a guest on the program, please reach out to us via info at marriagerc.org. So Fran, how is your walk with the Lord these past days? Oh, Laura, it's been a really rich couple of weeks. I've been working on trying to just get a more disciplined and structured um, prayer life. And so I've just been doing Lectio Divina and I'm finding the blessings of Scripture are just multiplying with that kind of regular time with the Lord. I'm really hearing his voice so much more clearly and just feeling very much blessed by that process. I can highly recommend just that kind of structured discipline. And Lectio Divina is really simple. It's got a nice balance for me of structure, but also just with some free prayer and reflection time as well. So it's not just like a rote prayers over and over or just reading continuously. Um, I like being able to just sit in the presence of the Lord and, and listen for his voice. And do you do that by yourself, Fran, or with a group? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah mostly just do it by myself just in the morning. Beautiful. Well, at the moment for me, um, I'm just feeling like a desire to read God's word. And I have a beautiful word on fire Bible, which you gave to me. It was a beautiful gift. And as you know, it's this beautifully printed Bible of the gospels and it's got reflections from the amazing Bishop Robert Barron. I find him so enriching anything he films Mm. or writes. So I'm walking with the Lord through the gospels and then reading Bishop Barron's reflections on those gospels and yeah just really enriching and nourishing Uh, and I have I actually have the bible in our guest room and so that guest room's always made out you know the beds are made and it's a nice clean minimalist vibe going on in there so it's become like this little retreat space (laughs) oh nice yeah it's nice to just um you know if the house is a mess I just retreat in there and read a parable and read a reflection so that's I'm just journeying with the Lord in that way (laughs) it's good to have a little bit of a space in the home isn't it where you can just go and it's conducive to prayer um Mm. i i I have a space in our front room but it doesn't get the morning sun so i always want to go out to the back of the house which is a little bit busier but it does um have the sun and my kids tend to be late sleepers so it's actually not too busy in the morning when i'm there so shall we get into it let's unpack the topic how to love smarter Uh, So there's a real art and science to loving and most people think that love is spontaneous or instinctual that we've kind of inherited this idea from our culture. I think that because love has such strong emotions associated with it, we tend to think of love as an emotion 
But the reality is there's actually quite a bit of research around it and there's some really good tips. And, and also we can bring our will and our intellect to the process of loving in a way that will help us get a more effective and just be more effective sounds like it's sort of orchestrated or, or artificial in some way, but it's it's actually more about being sincere and making sure that our efforts to love are really hitting the mark. So to unpack that a little bit more, everyone experiences love a little bit differently. It's sort of like a personality and we call it a unique love profile. So I have a, a, a pattern, if you like, of uh, gestures or actions or experiences that speak love powerfully to me and it will be quite unique to me and the same as with Laura and each of our listeners. But the thing is, is that we tend to give love or express love in the way that we like to receive it mm. rather than how the other experiences. So we're really tending to love by instinct rather than intention. So the whole principle of smart loving, it's our brand name, but it's also a framework, if you like, or a principle, is to love the other the way they like and need to be loved. So I'll just repeat that smart loving is loving the other the way they like and need to be loved. And it's really one of the most important little ideas that we present pretty much in all of our courses. And there's three pillars, if you like, or foundations to that. The first one is, is that love is a choice. It's not just an emotion. It's something we can bring our will to and we can choose choose to love, even if our feelings aren't uh, feeling very loving at the time. It's other-centred. So we're thinking about the other person and how they like and experience love. So in some ways it's actually a very genuine, authentic love because we're orientating and thinking about the other person and finally it's it's smart it's effective because if we're going to love if we're going to go to the trouble of trying to express love we really want it to actually hit the mark and make an impact on the other person rather than just um, you know let us feel good because we've done something generous or loving towards the other person we want them to also feel the benefit of, of our gesture so there's the three pillars if you like of smart loving loving the other the way they like and need to be loved. Laura, what's your reaction or what was your reaction to the idea that you can choose to love? Do you remember when you first heard that idea? And I do. I do recall the time when I first heard the presentation of the idea that you can choose to love. And at first I thought, oh, it doesn't sound very romantic <laughs> because, you know, I, I didn't want to have to choose to love my husband. I wanted for it to come naturally because obviously it's easier if something comes naturally and it's a bit more fun and free. Um, but being introduced to the idea that you can choose to love the other, um, it prepared me that there would be times when I did not feel like loving Joe, um, my husband, Joseph. So after almost a decade of marriage, my re reaction now to that idea that you can choose to love is yes, absolutely you can. And I can recall many times when I choose to love Joseph, uh, you know, when we were first married, I, I needed to become more methodical and organised in the cleaning and packing away of my items in the home. So I'd never lived with anyone besides my own family before. And so when Joe and I were married and we were, we had our own small apartment, I had to learn how to to live with him and, and not be messy like in my family of origin I had my own bathroom and ensuite so I was able to leave you know my makeup out and my hair care products out and without complaints from other family members so when I moved in with Joe after marriage we I had this bad habit and so when he would come in and need to you know shave and put his shaving cream out there would just be all of my items <laughs> out on the out on the bathroom so he um we had to have a conversation about that and, you know, he, he was just saying, 
I, I would love you to love me in this way and just get up a little bit earlier, 10 minutes earlier and wipe down the bathroom and prepare it for me. And did I feel like doing that every morning? No, but I would say in my mind, I'm going to choose to love Joe in this way. This is what he's asked for and what he, mm. he needs. And then, of course, when Joe would notice that I made that effort and chose to love him in that way, he would thank me for doing that and I'd get this little bit of praise and affirmation so I wanted to do it again and again so slowly it became a habit so I really find that Fran and you probably experienced the same marriage brings your faults to the surface I needed to grow as a human being in that area Mm -hmm. of my organization and life and the impact of choosing to love Joe in that way is making me the best version of myself so that's my yeah choosing to love I think is I really agree with that that concept mm-hmm. <laughs> even if it isn't even even if it isn't so romantic all the time it's a yeah, choice love yeah. is a choice that's my own experience <laughs> I guess it's at the pointy end of our in our marriage um, with Byron um, it really comes into play when I'm feeling a bit hurt with him and I'm annoyed or I'm disappointed or I'm just wounded that's where the the choice to love really becomes very intentional conscientious there's lots of little ways that I think are not not that difficult like an example we often share is you know Byron's always been very sensitive to the dirt on the floors it's a it's a I think it's an Italian thing when we went to Italy we just they always seem to be sweeping if we got up early enough like not just when we lived there we'd be up early to go shopping and they'd be all sweeping so I think it comes through his Italian genes but it's it, it never the, the dirt on the floor never really bothered me that much, and I'd be there all day with little kids and things, and you know the floor just gets pretty gross Crumbs. after. Oh yeah. yeah, and sand from the sand pit and everything else. And he'd come home from work with his leather soled shoes, and it'd go crunch crunch on the sand, and he'd be reaching for the broom the minute he got into the door. So it was just a really simple thing for me to make the decision to, hey, he's just texted me, he's on his way home. Let me quickly sweep the floor so that when he comes in, he's not distracted by his shoes crunching on the sand. He can give me his attention. I can give my attention to him. And so it was. It was a, that was a, a relatively simple thing because it avoided attention arising. But it's. I guess it's much more challenging when I'm feeling really wounded or neglected or upset with him. That's when I guess the decision to forgive is one way that I can choose to love um, or the decision to try to suspend judgment, you know, something's happened and my first instinct is to interpret it in a really hurtful way mm. and making the decision to say, no, hang on a minute, I'm not going to jump to conclusions. Let me suspend judgment until he's had a chance to explain what he meant or why, you know, and so on. That came up a lot with lateness. Like, you know, he'd, he'd say he'd be home at a certain time and that time would come and go and it happens Quite often, you know, he's in a work that's very unpredictable, whereas I'm working from home, so I'm always here. So that was another area that I think I had to learn to say, don't jump to the conclusion that he just doesn't care or he's being negligent in some way, but to hold hold open a curiosity and an openness and a, um, a receptivity to him or a different way of interpreting. That That's where my decision to love really comes into play. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful examples, Fran. Yeah, well, likewise. Okay, so that's kind of the the basic introduction to the idea of smart loving or smarter loving. Mm. I want to enrich it a little bit and keep sort of going deeper by bringing into our conversation a really popular model 
that probably many of our listeners have already heard of, and that's The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And it's really, in some ways, same sort of idea of loving the other way they like and need to be loved. But he uses the word love languages and he, he's identified five common patterns, if you like, or, or languages in which people communicate love. And they are, number one, words of affirmation, two, quality time, three, acts of service, four, receiving gifts, and five, physical touch. And the model kind of basically says that, well, we've got a primary language and then a secondary one that comes into play a little bit less strongly. And that the way we tend to express love tends to be the way we experience it. So that's consistent. But the primary love language will be the one that just really resonates with us. And so if we want to communicate love effectively, we need to know the other's love language. And on their website, if you just do a Google search for love languages, you can do little online quizzes where they'll help you basically rank your love languages in order of importance. And so it can be really helpful for couples. You can think about it also in terms of your relationships with your children. What's their love language? So Laura, what's your primary love language and how does it play out? Yeah, my primary love language would be words of affirmation. I love to be told that I'm doing a good job and I love if I've made a meal, I want to hear how delicious it is appreciation goes a long way for me and it makes me feel more in love and connected with Joe. So mm-hmm. if I feel I'm being criticised, uh, it really does hurt me and takes me a while to reconnect and I get defensive. And so, yeah, it takes me a while to get back to where we were. And my secondary love language, I think, would be quality time. So having quality time together a good conversation over a meal, a date night, even watching TV together. We often pause it and, you know, something in the TV show brings up something and we pause it and have a chat. So sharing a glass of wine. um, I love just those moments of quality time and being together. Mm. And what about Joe? What's his primary love language, do you reckon? Oh, that's, I think... um, definitely quality time as well and words of affirmation but so he his would be quality time as a higher as his primary and yeah he also loves words of affirmation too so we're similar in that regard oh that's a great blessing because when you've got that similarity even though you're probably a primary and your secondary are swapped it's you're going to be hitting the mark most of the time even without thinking about it Um, for me, my primary love language, I think, is physical touch. That came through really strongly when I did the sort of the quiz probably about 25 years ago. And then quality time. But Byron's is probably receiving gifts and Mm -hmm. secondly, acts of service or maybe swapped around. So we've got our profiles are completely inversed. Wow. And we've had many um, really funny encounters, like many of our graduates from our courses have heard us tell the story about Byron buying chocolates on his way home in the airport. He travels a lot for his work as a consultant. And he'd be feeling a little bit guilty that he'd been away for the week, so he'd pick up the chocolates in the airport. And I don't don't mind chocolate, but it's, it's not my love language, right? Physical touch, quality time, that's my love language. So, you know, he'd give them to me and I'd pop them in the fridge for later or keep them for guests and, you know, of course, he'd go hunting in the fridge for the the, uh, the chocolates later on. So he was trying hard. <laughs> but I wasn't meeting my needs. And similarly, you know, physical touch. And when I think of physical touch, it's not just – I'm not talking so much about lovemaking in that context. I'm thinking about the hugs, the kisses, the massages. And things like there can be times for me in my – when we had staff in the workplace where um, I sort of 
my instinct would be to say, hey, you're looking really stressed, and I'd give them a shoulder rub. And I had to kind of really go, oh, hang on, maybe that's crossing a bit of a boundary here. It's it's fine to do that for a friend or your sister or your husband or your kids, but maybe not for your colleague at work. <laughs> But you're also a mum as well. So, you know, your physical, that's how you show appreciation and love. So that's funny. Really, really. And really obvious when I've got the grandchildren over and it's, it is, their little kids are so physical. I think that's why I actually really love being involved with little kids. And I find teenagers a little bit harder because the teenagers tend to withdraw that little bit physically and and it's awkward you know you sort of go in for a hug with your teenage son it's like oh okay mom they tolerate it but with the little kids it's also physical it's it's natural so I think that's why I uh, one of the reasons why anyway. Joe and I have a funny little thing couple routine we do to make sure we often show each other affection whenever we're on an escalator we have a rule couple connect kiss and so as we're going <laughs> up the escalator we'll have a, a peck on the lips and you know you're often going in the shopping centre together. So it makes it part of our, our routine schedule, you know, physical affection. So oh, that's, that's that's too funny. And it's in public too. It's sort of like a crowded escalator with uh, people I know wondering whether you're going to remember to step off when you get to the end of the escalator. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Trying to be a sign of our, you know, a witness to love in that way in the shopping centre. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> well, on that note, let's take a quick break and we'll come back to explore more ways we can love smarter. We've been talking about how to love smarter and we're now ready to go deeper. So, Laura, we've, uh, we're talking previously about the five love languages. There's another really great model that's been very influential in our work in smart loving, and that's Willard Harley's His Needs, Her Needs. Uh, Willard Harley is a Christian psychologist and he really put a lot of kind of scientific sort of analysis into trying to break down and understand what makes a marriage successful. He was working with a lot of couples who were divorcing and he was despairing that they weren't um, recovering. So he kind of, he actually stopped charging money to work with couples and started making it into a study. And so what he identified in his model was that there was the idea of emotional needs, that we have these needs that have strong emotions attached to it. And when people meet our emotional needs, we feel bonded to them. We experience a sense of love. And so he then set out to try to identify, well, what were the typical emotional needs? And as he surveyed couples and worked with them, 10 emotional needs came up you know, over and over again. I'll name them really quickly, affection, sexual fulfilment, intimate conversation, recreational companionship, honesty and openness, physical attractiveness, financial support, domestic support, family commitment and admiration. And I know when I see that list, I think, oh, yeah, all of those sound really good. But there are some that are perhaps a little bit stronger than others for me. And I recognise that some of those would be more relevant to Byron. And he found that as well, that there were some differences and a pattern of sexual differences that occurred 
keeping in mind that when we talk about sexual differences and patterns, we're not talking about stereotypes. So we're not trying to sort of box people and make them conform. Um, as we know, our sexual experiences, our sexual expression is, is a little bit on a spectrum and we can be strongly in one and less strongly in another in terms of conforming to a typical pattern associated with our sex or our gender. So that was kind of interesting to sort of see you know, that women were, for example, identified affection and intimate conversation as far, far more strongly than men did, and likewise sexual fulfilment and recreational companionship was more strongly identified as for men. He also, so he had these sort of emotional needs. So he kind of then started to think about, well, what do we need to do to, we need to meet those needs in a framework of building love in the relationship. But then he also started to look at some of the negatives and he called those um, love busters. What are the things or the gestures that people do? And he identified a bunch of those. I won't go into to, uh, explaining all of those, but it was, kind of a nice model that seemed to work and resonate with people was getting, more importantly, was getting results. So again, this idea of a, a love profile, that we have a, a kind of a pattern of priority in terms of these emotional needs that really speak powerfully to us. Um, but then there was also a profile in the, in the kind of the negative and the love buster sense. I think he came up with about five common love busters and people would then, there wasn't a, a, um, a stronger sexual pattern in terms of male and female preferring, you know, identifying one or the other. But there was, you know, typically, I think he had five, as I said, and but there would be one or two that would be really the most negative or that had the most negative impact. So, Laura, um, love builders and love busters. Mm. What's, your, what's your, your top builder and your bottom buster, if you like, or your... Yeah, it, my love builders for me, for sure, is when Joe expresses appreciation for me. So being considerate and thoughtful, giving way to my preferences. For instance, if what, what would you like to eat for dinner tonight if we're getting takeaway or a choice of what we do on the weekend? Affirming my strength in, you know, in body and character. I'm, I'm really proud of you getting up early to go to Pilates. That shows a lot of good on you for dedicating time and to your health and for showing the strength of character to wake up early. Thank you for working hard to contribute to our family and to help contribute mm. to the bills. So yeah, I really, that for me just makes me feel super connected and builds up mm. that loving trust and, and busters for me is criticism. So if he, if he's teasing me in front of others or I, I feel like I'm coming off negatively with a story he's telling, it really irks me <laughs> or even, um, nagging me or reminding me things I need to do if I especially if I know I'm going to get to them I've got them on my to-do list and if he mm. reminds me I want to I want to just have them be done without him reminding me if that makes sense so I think yeah. it goes yeah. to my my woundedness as well and my pride but it's that's my they're my builders and my love busters on yeah. reflection of myself it's good for Joe to know that and be aware of it and he can <laughs> approach mm -hmm. if he needs to bring something up with me like the messy bathroom he can do it in a way that I don't feel criticized or that I'm a flawed wife <laughs> which yeah. I am of course but <laughs> yeah yeah we're all we've all got um those points of vulnerability and I guess for me openness and honesty is one of the um a really strong one for me and I suppose intimate conversation again love the opportunity to just have those conversations that we can ex share each other's feelings and let each other into our interior world and so on that's really important and I guess that relates to the openness and honesty because a good conversation is open and in yes. and, and is honest and likewise I guess on the flip side of that that the you know key love buster would be any sense of withholding keeping secrets or 
um, not letting me in to when he's trying to make a decision and you know, he might just be, Byron might just be really busy and, and pressured and under, you know, just having to make a decision quickly. That stings to me to be excluded from those important decisions, mm-hmm. even though it can be really perfectly understandable. And likewise for him, I think um, he, he's often expressed his real appreciation for recreational companionship. That's quite a, a big one for him that uh, he really just enjoys sometimes my company when he's doing a chore, like cleaning the pool. He doesn't necessarily want me to come and clean the pool with him, but if I just hang around and chat with him while he's doing that, he really appreciates it. And so that's kind of been a pattern that I've noticed with him, that he doesn't have a lot of recreation. So sometimes doing the physical chores around the house is some of the, one of the ways that he gets exercise. So it feels therapeutic to him in a way, even if it's a really mundane thing like sweeping out the, the water, the pools in our front gutter. But he really, really likes it if I can just hang out and keep him company while he's doing that. Yeah, shoulder-to-shoulder bonding of while yeah, the task yeah. gets done. Yeah, and you see that a lot with men generally, that kind of, you know, working together on the, the working bee or the building bee or something like that up at the school or the parish, that there is, I think, a, a, a very natural bonding that happens when they're doing that work together, yeah. physical work together. Yeah, Joe often says that for, for dates. He, he says that, you know, when you go on a first date, if you're having a meal as a man with a woman, it's all intimate conversation, right? And if mm. that's the stronger suit for the female, Joe often recommends to single guys that we know, he's like, take them out bowling or go on a bushwalk. That shoulder-to-shoulder bonding seems to be less intimidating for the guy. Mm. <laughs> so mm. that's interesting you say, you know, Byron likes, you know, that recreational companionship. Yeah. Like, and it's not, a time, for, it's not a time for really cosy conversation. It's often just, you know, mundane observations or, you know, just chit-chat. It's company, not so much intimate conversation at all. Yeah. So mm. interesting. Yeah. Differences, female yes. male differences. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, but also just unique to the person and, and knowing where, where to target our focus. So just taking it a little bit further, going deeper with the sexual differences, another author uh, and therapist that has been really influential and help, helpful is Emerson Egerichs. He's a Christian pastor and he's got a program or a, and a book called Love and Respect and he draws on the St Paul's letter to the Ephesians to in Ephesians 5 there's that really famous letter where he addresses it to husbands and wives and he starts with be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ and then details it out and wives do this and husbands do that we won't read the whole thing now and then concludes with each of you however should love his wife as himself and a wife should respect her husband so there's this strong element of husbands being commanded to love their wives and wives being commanded to respect their husbands. And he breaks it down. So a really important aspect of it is understanding that the word love in English, in the original ancient Greek, it was agape. And the Greeks used a couple of different words to describe love. And agape is sort of understood or defined as a kind of a charity or sacrificial love, as a kind of service. Uh, so a little bit different to eros, which was another word that the Greeks used, but that, that's where we get our word erotic from. It's kind of got a more passion or emotional dimension to it or a desire as part of that. And then you get things like philia and storge and so on as the other four. So they talk about four different words the Greeks had for love, but he uses agape here. So this idea of sacrificial love and then also respect. He just really challenges the idea that respect 
has to be earned. So I don't know about you, Laura, but for me, I've always, I guess I've absorbed that cultural assumption that respect is something that you earn by your good behaviour or by your performance and then you right. are given respect as a sort of a reward for being worthy of the respect. But um, Emerson Egrick sort of says, no, 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 that this is actually something that's so fundamental to the sense of a man's feeling accepted in the relationship and connected that we need to challenge our thinking on that to be able to offer our husbands as wives respect, irrespective of whether we think they deserve it or not. Mm. um, And, well, if you're looking at it, my reaction would be to that idea of respect owed, not earned. As a Christian, we look at all humans with respect, like respect for life, respect they're created in the image and likeness of God. I guess, you know, you're so familiar with your husband and it's like you've got to remember that and, like, would you have that basic respect for their for their manliness, for their their, their position in your life as your husband? Like that's mm. – I do think that, yeah, we need to respect our husbands. It's really important and I, I definitely – Joe would – definitely feel if I he felt disrespected it would be a love buster for him so I've you know over the years I've understood that yeah for a man it's so important to feel respected by mm. his wife well and it's really interesting that you mentioned about it kind of in the inverse in the sort of the absence of it and because uh, it's actually the preferences show up even more strongly in the absence so if you ask, if I were to ask you, Laura, do you prefer to be loved or respected? You'd probably say, like most women, well, I like them both, right? I yeah. don't want to be disrespected. Of course. But in the when they look at them, some studies, that if you're given a, if if you have to choose between two negative outcomes, to be alone and unloved, or to be inadequate and disrespected, and I'm citing here some research by Shanti Feldham, another Christian author, there's a real sexual bias that for men it is much worse to be inadequate and disrespected than it is to be alone and unloved. So something that's about sort of around 75 to 80%. And the inverse for women, that for women, most women would say being alone and unloved is more terrifying or awful than being inadequate and disrespected. Mm, so interesting. Uh, it is, it is. And it plays into, and it's interesting that St Paul, all these years and years ago, centuries ago, was had an instinct for this and was able to, I guess, well, he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But there's this kind of really beautiful insight into the unique way that men and women can really uh, respond in love to each other in a way that's that's tailored to who they are and their identity uh, in their in their sexual being. That's so interesting. We're going to take a quick break now and come back to give some examples. on Radio Maria Australia. We've been talking about how to love smarter and now it's time to get practical. So if you remember from our previous um, segment there, we were talking about love and respect uh, from St Paul's letter to the Ephesians and how he gives us instructions for husbands to love their wives and women to respect their husbands. One of the things that we like to do in Smart Loving is that we prefer to use the word cherishment instead of love 
for the reason that what St Paul is talking about is a particular type of love, which in the Greek it's agape. And when you break that down and you look at the details of how he tells the husbands to love their wives, it really is much better encapsulated by the English word cherishment. And so we like to use cherishment and respect as two sort of expressions of love. And we would say that, you know, respect as is also a way of loving they're both ways of loving but that one speaks particularly powerfully to the feminine heart and the other particularly powerfully to the masculine heart and so the challenge as couples living under the authority of Christ is to love each other in the way that the other most experiences it so for me as a wife that means to pay particular attention to the way I expressed my respect for Byron and for him to particularly be attentive to the needs for cherishment in me so Laura you got an example I mean we like to we like to contrast smart loving with dopey loving yes lots of examples of dopey loving (laughs) yeah okay why don't you share with us Oh, yes. So when we were first married and we give this example to our couples, engaged couples that we sponsor, I was dopey loving when we first got married, wanting to, you know, do the, show my love by doing household chores as an act of love. I remember one time I was doing the laundry and I'd completed all the tasks. Joe said, oh, Laura, thanks so much for doing the laundry. Could I just um, ask you a favour, though, that could you please do my top on my business shirts? Could you please button the top button on my business shirt? And, of course, you know, I just, I I roll. I I thought, oh, gosh, Joe, you know, isn't it (laughs) enough that I've done the laundry and put all the shirts on the coat hangers? And he, you know, said to me, remember the smart loving? You know, this is the way way I want to need to be loved. And I just started laughing and I thought, yep, you're right. So um, for me, if I have a button, a shirt that needs buttoning up, I just put it on the coat hanger because I find it easier to take off. But Joe likes to steam it. So having the top button done up allows him to steam his shirts um, easier. So there you go. That was now I'm just like, I do the top button up on his business shirts as an act of love. And um, we've never looked back. But that was my example of dopey loving and, <laughs> um, you know, not wanting to do it his way, even though that was how I could show him love and mm-hmm. respect and honor him. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just so so simple isn't it Fran but it's and I think really that's the point isn't it really is that it's it's sometimes it, it's not the big grand gesture that makes or breaks a marriage it's these little tiny that seem on their own to be so trivial but accumulatively they actually add up to a whole pattern or a profile of of loving gesture and um, the reality is we either feel loved or we feel unloved by the pinpricks yeah. uh, or the or the light touches And so rather than kind of being obsessed with how do I do something that's a really big grand gesture, and I think perhaps men might be a little more prone to this than women. You know, they might think, oh, I've got to make up for being away so much or I've got to make up for, you know, my inadequacy somehow. So we're plan a big fancy night out. And it's really lovely to have those occasionally. But actually I think the small daily gestures add up to be much more effective which brings us to our practical tool for this um, for this topic, which is what we call a daily appreciation. And it's really simple. It's just every day to share one thing that I've appreciated about you today. And then we say how it affected me. So I might say to Byron, I've really appreciated how you so faithfully manage the garbage in the house. It's a yucky job. And, you know, every week you're emptying the garbage bins and remembering which bin has got to go out 
Of course, it's never easy these days, is it? You've got recycling and composting and <laughs> general rubbish and, and so on. So, But then the important thing is to not just say what is done, but then to say why I appreciate it. So that gets into a more personal thing. I feel really supported and cherished when you do that. It's something that I dislike doing, and so I really feel very impacted and loved when you do that. So kind of just breaking it down. So it works on a couple of different way, different levels. One is, is that obviously it builds the self-esteem of the other, that appreciation is one way that we can build the other person up. It also helps me as the person giving the appreciation because I'm building my gratitude muscle, if you like. I'm scanning for the good rather than disappointment. So even if I'm feeling a bit negative and hurt, by thinking about what have I appreciated about him, it flips me out of focusing on being disappointed into focusing on being blessed. And finally, in a really practical way, it's a way that we give feedback to the other on how we like to feel loved. So it's playing into that idea of how do I get to know what kind of gestures of love my husband wants to have? Well, if he's doing a daily appreciation, I can be alert to what are the things that he's really appreciating. They're obviously the things that are the smart loving rather than the dopey loving. He's not going to appreciate that he's been loved in a dopey way. Yeah, daily appreciation. I can't emphasize how important this has been for our marriage. For me, as you said, Fran, it stops me taking Joe for granted. So at the end of the day, I'm reflecting on the things he's done throughout the day that made my life better. So it can even be something that he did in the past, but you're still a I'm still appreciative of. For example, this morning I sat out on the deck that he built and was having my morning coffee and the sun was coming down and our little doggy was looking out and sniffing the wind. And so tonight when we do our daily appreciation, I'm just going to say thank you so much for building the deck. I just loved it. It was was hard work. It was Mm. physically demanding labour and it was new to him. So he had to watch a whole load of YouTube videos and get advice from other carpenters and builders so it was a difficult task and so I'm just going to bring that up and say thank you again so much for building the deck I love sitting out there today I'm so lucky that you have a I have a husband who's handy like that and yeah just appreciate him for Mm. for that Mm. that thing that he's done for our family home and and I've seen that deck it's an epic deck it's not (laughs) it's not like a little you know weekend hobby thing it was a a really professionally executed he did a great job on it yeah Um, you've got the the pergola as well with the vines growing over it's just amazing it's a really lovely spot he really planned it out and put his heart and soul into it so when I pour out that appreciation every day then he appreciates me back for whatever he's noticed that I've done throughout the day Today I prepped our our lunches and checked in to see beforehand that he would like what I was gonna what I had in my mind for lunch so I wasn't dumb loving and giving him something that he didn't mm-hmm. want to eat. So he'll probably appreciate me for that. And it's just so sweet and it melts your heart towards each other when you're mm-hmm. when you're loving on each other and appreciating each other for those sometimes mm-hmm. mundane tasks. And I think that's one of the things that we've noticed. We've had some dark days in our marriage where we've just been really hurt with each other and you kind of get into that snowball kind of system where everything we seem to say or makes it worse rather than better Uh, but the daily appreciation has been a little bit of a circuit breaker for us because it's pulled us out of feeling self-piteous and sorry for us myself and him feeling sorry for himself and perpetuating that kind of mood of grumpiness into just trying to flip a switch and go into a different way of approaching each other. Really powerful for that kind of mental kind of warfare that goes on. I think in some ways the spiritual warfare, they say the battle happens in the mind, it's in the way we think, 
And if there's one place that we know the devil targets, it's marriage and family life. It's a real, it's a really potent battleground. And so being able to kind of be aware of that, bring it to prayer as well. For, it's just that really good discipline that helps us counterbalance that negative tendency. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, I'd like to say that often our tools are really great for applying into your prayer life. Like if it's good for us as a husband and wife and building our relationship, it's going to be great for us as daughters and sons of the Lord to use that in our prayer life. There's always so much to be thankful for to yes. the Lord. And so praise in some ways is, is the most foundational of all our type of prayer. But often I think we can come to prayer with this honey-do list. <laughs> Yeah, we can have a honey-do list for the Lord. Can you fix this? Can you do that? Can you, you know, make the kids go to sleep and stay to sleep tonight? Can you fix the budget? Can you do this? Help me with uh, this. Help me with that. Yeah, right. Requests rather than thanks, yeah. God. I'm so grateful for everything, all the blessings. Yes. So um, I think bringing some of this daily appreciation and the mentality and the spirit of it into our prayer life can uh, really be a great asset as well. That's so true, Fran. We're going to take a quick break now before we do some smart, loving Q&A answering. Australia and it's time for our smart loving Q&A. We get questions every day from wives, husbands, couples and sometimes clergy from around the world. Um, so what have you got for us Laura? So we often get questions Fran from couples who maybe they've been living together for a long time and they are choosing to get married now and they're wondering why they need to do a marriage preparation course to get married in the Catholic Church. And sometimes we get civilly married couples or couples who were previously married and they think they should be exempt from doing a marriage preparation course. So the question, our smart living question for today is why do we need to do a marriage preparation course if we're getting married in the Catholic Church? So my answer to these couples would be like any of the sacraments of the church, you need to learn what you are committing to. So just like when you receive your first Holy Communion or your first sacrament of confession or confirmation, yeah, you need to understand the sacramental reality that's taking place. So a Catholic marriage is a sacrament and it's more than a private relationship. A sacrament is a living sign of God's love. And so the church calls all married people to be a living sign of Christ's love for his people. So What's Christ's love like? It's merciful. It's generous. It's self-sacrificial love. And, you know, as we've been discussing today, you can learn how to love well and love better and communicate better and show respect and show cherishment to it, to one another. And so a marriage preparation course is just so necessary mm. <laughs> to ensuring that you are, a, you are a good witness to God's love through your mm. sacrament of marriage. If you don't do a marriage preparation course, you miss out on all that great content and relationship science and what the church teaches about marriage. So, yeah. Fran, you probably have other other points to add to what I've just said. Yeah, sure. But, I mean, you've hit the main point, which is 
I think it's really easy for us to think that, hey, we've been in this relationship for years um, and we're getting on really well. That's why we're getting married. What are you going to be teaching us that we don't already know? And sometimes even couples who've been previously married, their first marriage might have ended in divorce, but they'll still feel like, oh, well, I, I know what I'm doing. I know not, well, now what not to do because it didn't work last time. Sometimes they don't even accept any responsibility. They might say it was all the other's fault, so this time's going to be different. So there's, a, there's certainly an aspect of sort of relationship skills and you, we can learn and we do need to learn that. And I think it's in some ways it's a great shame that we can be so resistant to getting support on that really practical thing. It's kind of like we don't try and, um, you know, we, we go to a doctor or an accountant for specialist financial advice or a doctor for specialist medical advice. We don't just assume that we can get all the answers. And, we, and, and often you can get a good, you know, Google it, you can get some of it, but a specialist who actually knows it really well is really helpful. So there's that aspect, but it's, that's not even the most important aspect. The relationship skills are not the most important. The most important is actually the formation and the spirituality, preparing our hearts to receive the Lord more fully into our into our life. Um, we're making a vow before the Lord. It's got eternal consequences. Interestingly, the dicastery for laity, family and life, I think it is, and Pope Francis have just recently released new guidelines where they're saying we need to do much, much more marriage preparation, that it should be a minimum of a year. I'm yet to read it and understand it a little bit more. But they're pointing out that, you know, we, we train priests in the seminary for years and years before we um, allow them to take their final vows and that we're doing an injustice to couples if we cut that short. So there's that sort of theological and spiritual preparation. But really importantly is also this idea of journeying on this together. So even if one of them might have been engaged previously and they did a course with their previous fiancé, and then subsequently broke up. There's still the need to actually learn and do it together because the process of discovering this and revisiting these topics brings to the surface a whole lot of really important just insights and um, opportunities to grow closer in intimacy, to understand each other a little bit better because every relationship needs to discover its own, its own uniqueness. We often reflect you know, we, we were pretty smug when Byron and I, when we were engaged, we, we had beautiful parents and very successful marriages, but we thought we were going to be better and we'd never face any challenges. Uh, we learned pretty quickly that that was not the case, that we had plenty of faults. And there was also that we couldn't just take the blueprint from our parents and apply it, that we needed to discover for ourselves what was our particular unique strengths and weaknesses and, and work to those. So all of those things, marriage preparation is an opportunity. So whatever circumstance you're in, whether you've been only been dating or seriously for a couple of months or a year, or whether you've been married or living together and started a family for over a decade, there's still, there's always more to learn. And when you're going to take that vow before the Lord, it's really important to know exactly what you're saying yes to. If you've got questions for us, you can contact us via the Radio Maria website or visit us at smartloving.org slash conversations and there's a form there you can submit your questions. Before we sign off, we wanted to share a blessing with you. This is going to become a little feature of our podcast. We want to share with you things that have blessed our life. So Fran, what has blessed you recently? I'd really like to share the Abiding Together podcast. Um, and in fact, this is where the idea of the blessing comes from. They call it the one thing. It's three beautiful women, Sister Miriam Heidland-James, 
Michelle Bedzinger and I forgot Heather Kim, a Canadian and two Americans. Just beautiful, beautiful discussions of these wonderful women talking about pursuing the Lord. Been so just such a delight. So it feeds my soul so beautifully. So I really recommend Abiding Together podcast. They're on all the major platforms, or you can go to their website and you can listen to it um, directly on their website. We'll put the link on our website for you. Yes. And my bless you, which I mentioned previously in the podcast, is the Word on Fire Bible. So I've got the one, the Gospels, with reflections by Bishop Robert Barron, and also there's reflections from the Church Fathers. So Franz just told me that there's actually a second edition now, which includes the Acts of the Apostles and the Letters. So that's, as I said, it's blessed me. It's really created this desire for me to read the scriptures more often and retreat to my little my little retreat area in the home of the guest bedroom and to just journey with Jesus through those those gospels. So And there's really something rec- really nice about the physical beauty of it. Like it's filled with gorgeous um, artworks and paintings. And I mean we're so digitally orientated these days. Like when I do my Lectio Divina, I, I'm just using Universalis app, which just brings up the text, the gospel of the day, so I don't have to flick through, you know, find the particular page. But there is something really beautiful about yeah. opening the pages of a book and it's just this sensory delight that's there. Yeah, and this book is beautifully printed and the it, it's like a leather cover mm. with a beautiful, like, silver edging to it. So it does feel really special mm. and precious. Of course, mm. you know, the Word of God, whatever it's printed on, feels that way, but... You just come to come to reading it with it, that that awe and respect. Mm. And it's nice the church, the, the the church fathers, the commentary there, because uh, there's, I guess, so, so many people feel like the church that's Christ established is not the same church that we have today, and they want to kind of try and get back and capture some of the original. Um, essence of what those apostles and those early church fathers have. So reading the church fathers is is one way to connect with that. And, you know, there's lots of continuities um, that you see there that can be really, really valuable. So that brings us to the end of our time together. You can find more information, including links to our blessings, the show notes and more at smartloving.org slash conversations. That's www.smartloving.org forward slash conversations. We're Francine Parola and Laura Kane from Smart Loving, and we pray that you will be blessed in your walk with the Lord today and we lift you up and all your intentions to our patron saints, Our Lady Undoer of Knots, pray for us, and St John Paul II, pray for us. This is Radio Maria Australia. Goodbye.